everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes. I am joined by Terry Fakes. And as you've already gathered from the title, not only are we on our second to last book of the Bible, this is going to be a steamy one. It is indeed. And you may ask, why did we keep the Song of Solomon until near the end? And I'll just be honest. Uh, you've been married a little over a year and have a baby now, and we had to wait until you were married and had a child before we could talk about this. And probably if you're listening, you should take that advice as well. I thought this might be our first ever <laughs> podcast that had an explicit rating on it, but we're gonna yeah, exactly. We're gonna do our best to keep this close to the text. Now, I, I think there is some resistance on our part that I'll just admit up front that it, in thinking about, oh, what book would we like to do? This one never came to the top of my mind. And it's not because I dislike it, like the book of Ecclesiastes, for example. If you've listened to our podcast, you realize I was reluctant to do that one because I really don't <laughs> like that book within the within the scope of knowing that it is inspired. It's not mm-hmm. that I dislike this book at all. I really love this book, and I always look forward in the times that we come to it on our Bible reading plans. It's a hard book to know what to do with. And I think part of why I'm excited to go over it in this podcast is if our goal is always, what should you know before you read a certain book of the Bible? Or what what would be helpful information that if you just, on a Bible reading plan, started to read it this week, what what would help you get the most out of it? This is a really tricky book to set up. And that's kind of the intrigue of it, but that's probably part of the delay as well. That's true. You know, I do think the reluctance to dive into this book, I mean, it's just not one that's studied very often, has to do with our, and we'll get into this. I know you've you made a good point when we were talking about this, that our reaction to the cultural view of sex can take us to the other extreme, and this book doesn't fit either one. And so it ends up being a little off limits, but I would argue that this is how we should be calibrating our ideas about sex, but more on that in just a little bit. First of all, who wrote this thing? It's called the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. And in verse one, it says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Do you think Solomon wrote this? I think that that line is an attribution, although this is highly Mm -hmm. contested. I'll I'll tell you what I have a stronger opinion about is Uh the name of the book. The name of the book, I'm looking at the ESV, and I didn't check multiple translations on this, but in many translations, the the name of the book is the Song of Solomon. The name of the book should be the Song of Songs. Mm -hmm. And that's because the opening line is the Song of Songs. We've talked about this many times. In the Hebrew Bible, often you don't have a title per se. You have the first line or the first word that ends up being the title because that's what people know it by. This should be known as the Song of Songs, and here's why. The Song of Songs is like when you see the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament. It's a comparative. So it doesn't just mean a holy place. It means a holy, holy place, a very holy place, or a holier place. This is the Song of Songs, the songest of songs, the most Mm. song-like song. So it's, it's it's an extolation at the beginning of this book to say this is the greatest song, or at least a greater song. It's not repeated three times, so it may not be the greatest song, but it is a great, very great song, which is Solomon's. Now, people argue over whether or not uh, Solomon is the author of this, whether he is the subject of this, 
or whether it is attributed to his broader catalog of wisdom literature. And I think there's there's some flexibility there uh, in terms of room to disagree on whether you think that he wrote all of this or commissioned it or it's about him. I'll give Mm -hmm. you my take on that and then uh, would love to hear yours. Of those options, I think the least likely is that it is about Solomon. And here's why. First, there's no part of Solomon's life (laughs) that this accurately describes. So if you think about Solomon, what do we know about Solomon? Well, he had a thousand wives and hundreds of concubines. That does not fit with this (laughs) description (laughs) of chaste marital love, or at least a relationship that is a betrothal that leads into marriage in chapter three. (laughs) That does not fit with Solomon. Then there are some people that have argued, well, what if it was Solomon's first love? Well, Solomon's first wife is an Egyptian princess. And this for several reasons, some of which might come up, this cannot be an Egyptian princess. This is a person who's worked. This is a Shulamite, which actually is kind of a Solomonite is the way that you'd translate that in Hebrew. It's Mm -hmm. someone like him, but it's, it can't be an Egyptian princess for those reasons. So I would say it being autobiographical or about Solomon by someone else is the least likely option. Now, as to whether or not Solomon wrote it, that's probably the one I would pick as an ideal version of a relationship, or it is Solomon's in the sense that it belongs to his broader catalog of wisdom literature I don't have a strong opinion on that. Yeah, for me, I agree with everything you said. If this said, hi, I'm Solomon and I wrote this, I would believe that. But it, it's not clear. It doesn't make a, a, a clear attestation for Solomon. So consequently, I have a really simple principle about these things. And it is this. In the absence of compelling evidence to believe otherwise, And I mean compelling, I mean more than just a literary study saying, oh, it doesn't sound like something Solomon would write. Sounds like something that was written later. Yeah, it's got to be a little more compelling than just text criticism. But in the absence of compelling evidence, I like to go with what the people who live nearest the time thought. And so I would go with Solomon wrote this because I, I just think it's sort of like what, you know, we unless you have compelling evidence about the Constitution you're probably going to believe what the founding fathers wrote about it. And that's the way I feel about this is and in the absence of compelling evidence, why don't we just go with the people that were closer to that time? So that's not particularly scholarly, but that's my rule of thumb for almost all of these disputes. Agreed. I think that's a, that's a wise principle on any of the books that we've covered, but especially the ones where there's a lot of ambiguity. Now, mm-hmm. so if we've established a little bit that this is related to Solomon, either written by him or commissioned or, gathered by him. The other thing that's difficult about this book is the approach to take in reading it. So just an observation that you'll notice right from the beginning, this doesn't look like any other book in your Bible. It is in in poetic form, but it also has a dialogue. So you'll see she, others, she, he, others. There's a dialogue going on with different characters who are speaking. And in church history, you've seen really different approaches to this book. What genre is it? What does it mean? How should it be interpreted? And the majority position for the history of the church, starting with the early church fathers, going all the way up through the reformers, 
has been to read this essentially as an allegory about Mm -hmm. God and his people, Christ and the church. Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, preached 86 sermons on the first three chapters of this book as an allegory for God's love for the church, which seems kind of interesting until you start to read this and you're like, how did they get that? out of this. That's a theological paradigm that you can bring to this book. And I think there's some beneficial things in thinking about the relationship of God for his people. But I'll say it's not the thing that you would get if you just opened this book. It wasn't in the Bible and you were reading it out loud. What would you think that this is about? It would not be a grand allegory of God's love for the church. Now, as we go through each of these, let me say something positive, even with the critique. The, the positive part of this is you do see other instances in the Bible where you would read something this way. So, mm-hmm. or where you get a lens through which you might interpret a book like Song of Solomon that way. So the two obvious examples would be if he, in Ezekiel chapter 16, you see God portrayed as a lover. You see Israel portrayed as a woman. He takes Israel, rescues her. She grows up and they are in love with one another, but she prostitutes herself with other kingdoms. So you have this same kind of allegory metaphor presented mm-hmm. explicitly there in Ezekiel 16. The other one and the most common one that Christians bring is Ephesians chapter 5. So you have marriage between a man and a woman, which is a uh, way of understanding Christ's relationship with the church. Right. So marriage and the gospel are interpreting each other in a way that you could lay right on top of Song of Songs and say, this is the same kind of thing. It must be God loving his people, Jesus loving his church, just like Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5. Exactly. This allegorical approach has had, I mean, once you get into the realm of allegory, you can make a lot of things fit, whether it's a story about Christ and the church or God and Israel or Solomon's love for wisdom. I mean, you can, it opens the door to any number of interpretations, but I I will say it doesn't seem to be a compelling way to interpret it. To me, it seems fairly subjective. I think you're right, Cole, when you open it up, and you just read it, your first thought is that it's what I'd call historical. This is a letter written between two people with a little chorus, you know, and that puts some literary, I mean, it's just a, it's a love letter maybe between an actual man and an actual woman. I mean, that seems to be probably the most natural way to interpret it. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I think the most natural way is that it probably started out as a performance between Mm -hmm. actors. So like a love letter read out loud, essentially a song that people would perform at a meal that is an idealized form of love. It is two ideal, every, every man, every woman characters who are falling in love and it's a celebration of their love and intimacy together. The, the reverse of the allegorical view is what's become popular today, which is still even a little bit different from this version of, a, of uh, an intimate performance between two people. And that is to just read it as a manual for relationships and dating and sex. And so you got kind of the PG-13 version of this with Tommy Nelson. He has a very famous Song of Solomon series. In, I think it came out in the mid-90s, and it's really good mm-hmm. teaching on relationships and dating, 
you wonder at certain points during the series, what does this have to do with Song of Solomon? Because it's just good life advice. It's just good dating advice. How to court, how to date, how to be married, how to fight well, how to communicate well, uh, practical advice about sex. I mean, it's it's just a how-to guide for good relationships. And then the 2000s, I would say maybe like the R-rated version would be Mark Driscoll's version of Song of Solomon. which is like the Kama Sutra for Christians or something? Yes, which he preached at Mars Hill. And it got really famous, as you would imagine, because it pushed all the norms and said all the taboos out loud. And basically, he interpreted this as a string of innuendos and suggestive images to talk about what's in and what's out in the bedroom, what Christians can and cannot do, what's really going on here. I mean, it became very almost pornographic in the way that he talked about it. And I think that approach, when you step back, you also realize they're really treating this as a euphemism or as an allegory as well. It's not a theological allegory. It's a human allegory, but it's still an Mm -hmm. allegory. So what you have at, at the end of the day is an attempt to reconcile this with something other than what is the text really saying? You know, what, what does this text just plainly say? And it's poetic. It's full of images. So we have to follow the images and see where they lead. But but the approach of, no, it's just God in the church and, oh, this is basically pornographic are both ways yeah. of landing right. pretty far afield from what the text is actually saying. I think, as, as we just talked about a minute ago, if you take this as a performative song, a celebration of love and sex and intimacy, you get closer to what this is, which I think is a form of wisdom literature. What do you think about right. that? I completely agree. It's always been grouped with the wisdom literature. And what we mean by that is think about Proverbs. It's an easy way to understand it. Proverbs is giving you wisdom about how to use the proper use of things in life. For example, proper use of money, uh, proper way to treat your neighbors, proper way to do these. You know, you understand that Proverbs is wisdom about the proper place of things in life, the proper things of place of greed, etc. Psalms is almost performative. You get to listen and watch someone interact with God, and it's intended to be wisdom to teach us how to express our feelings to God. I agree with you, Cole. I think this is wisdom literature, and I think its purpose is to show the proper place of sex in life. Mm -hmm. It's like a proverb telling you how to use money well, how not to use money wrongly. I think this is a beautiful poem about the proper role of sex in in life and in the world. So I do I think that wisdom literature is the right way to look at this. Yeah, there's an added benefit here too that when you have something like Proverbs or Song of Solomon, and we discussed this a little bit in our our uh, podcast on Ecclesiastes, wisdom literature doesn't always describe the world as it is as much as it describes an ideal version, something to shoot for, something to attain. So if you read Proverbs, for example, you say, well, if I just did all these things, I would have a wonderful life. I would be rich. I would be out of trouble. I wouldn't be a fool. Uh, all my relationships would go well. I would prosper. That it, Proverbs is not a how-to guide in that sense. It is what would life be like in the presence of a righteous king and a righteous society? What are we trying to attain? Mm-hmm. And what would be a description of that world? That's what's going on in the Song of Solomon. This is an idealized uh, 
like we said earlier, it's it's an extolation in some ways of an ideal form of love. It's a description of what would perfect intimacy with another person be like in the context of marriage? That's what this book mm-hmm. is. And so it's not just saying, hey, if you're a good person and a Christian, this is exactly what your life will be like. But on the other side, it is saying there is a goal that you should be trying to attain in your intimacy. And this is a good description of it. It's not the only place in the Bible that does that. You see Proverbs chapter 5, for example, there's a father giving advice to his son on what marriage should look like and what it means to love mm-hmm. his wife exclusively. <clears throat> but this is a picture, and it's a biblical picture, of what sex and intimacy should be like and certain aspects of the relationship that someone would have with their spouse. Now, what struck me as I was reading this and going back through it is, if if it's wisdom literature, then it's a positive and a God-glorifying image of an ideal form of a human experience. That's what wisdom literature typically does. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then it's a really applicable picture for us to think through in the middle of two current trends in Christianity when it comes to sex and intimacy. So the, the first one is the one that most people are familiar with, and I would call that sexual expressionism. That is, you cannot be fully you unless you are able to express your inner sexual desires, whether that be who you can love, what gender, what you are as a person, who you're attracted to, what gender you are. We live in a world that is an expressivist culture. You cannot be fully yourself unless you are able to express whatever feeling and opinion and attraction you have. So this would be the LGBTQ movement. This would be the sexification of commercials and movies and entertainment. This would be churches who are really torn over you know, how they're going to handle some of these things because they don't want to exclude people because they, in some ways, are buying into the fact that to be whole, you must be able to express whatever it is you feel. There's some there's some interesting parts of that as a response to the church over the last 200 years. But as a general rule, that's not the picture you're going to find in the Song of Solomon. Now, on the flip side of that, one we don't think about quite as much, but I think is equally important to notice is the sexual repression part of the Christian church and specifically the evangelical church. So in recent years, you've had a lot of uh, responses to what, what people call purity culture. And I think purity culture is probably not quite as definable as some of these critiques make it to be, but essentially purity culture would be things like the I Kiss Dating Goodbye movement and the contracts that daughters and their dads would sign and purity rings and all of that. There was a big movement of these things. And some of the critiques have said things like what this leads to is two false visions of sexuality. Number one, if you're just a really good person and you do things God's way and you don't have sex before you're married, then your marriage is going to be perfect. You're going to have great godly kids. You're going to have wonderful, fulfilling sex Mm -hmm. in your marriage. And all this is going to be great. And that's not true. Doing all those things doesn't necessarily lead to that outcome. And then the second thing would be uh, just a demonization of sex in general. So you have people who get married and still feel really guilty for having any kind of sexual relationship with each other because they've been trained their whole life that it's bad, 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 stay away from it. But then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. the only thing that's changed is you go through the ceremony 
And that night, you're all of a sudden expected to have a totally different view on this than you've had your whole right. life. And so I think there, there are some good pushbacks in the critique of purity culture. But here's what you have to watch out for. Most people who are critiquing purity culture don't believe in purity. <laughs> what instead right. they're critiquing purity culture because deep down inside they actually don't believe that sex should be confined to a covenant marriage between a man and a woman. They they believe something outside of that and so of course they're against purity culture. But for the people right. that have pushed back on those two pieces that I just mentioned, kind of a total demonization of sex as all bad, it's really kind of an anti-physical trend in mm -hmm. Christianity. And then on the other this kind of uh, vi vision of the world that if you just do these good things, if you just abstain from these evil actions, God is going to reward you with a perfect family and sex life later on. That's sexual repression. And we also have to be watching out for that because what, what the Song of Songs does is it presents a good and godly vision of sex within the good parameters that God has assigned for it. And if you get that paradigm, then you realize that what Song of Songs is doing is celebrating something that God has called good when it's in its good context. Exactly. Uh, I couldn't agree more with that. You've got the two extremes of uh, sexual expression, expressivism and sexual repression. And neither of those is a healthy theology of the body, a theology of sex. I do think this, the Song of Songs is representing a healthy theology of sex. And it, it basically say it's just like money. It's just like anything else. Anything else, it's a gift from God. You can use it in ways that God doesn't intend, or you can use it in ways that God does intend. And this is an expression and a celebration of the beauty of using sex God does intend it. But here's a question I have. When you read this, I think there are three words that come to my mind. One is the idea of this is very romantic. The second is the question, is this erotic? And then a la the maybe the Mark Driscoll approach to this, does it start to get to pornographic? What do you think about those three words and which ones of those apply to the Song of Songs? That, that, that's a great set of categories because it certainly is romantic. What you have here is a couple who is in love. We'll talk in a minute about how you outline this book. Is there is it like Proverbs where it's just kind of various sayings or does it have a flow, a plot that runs through? And I, I do think it has a plot that runs through the book. And it's a couple who's fallen in love, who are getting married, who are consummating their marriage and growing in their love for one another. So in that case, it is romantic. It is also sexual and erotic in the fact that they do consummate in this book. So you don't have to just go allegories everywhere to realize that in certain parts of this book, like chapter four, for example, there is action. This isn't just a Shakespearean sonnet where they're thinking about loving each other. It really is a description of them consummating their marriage together, which starts in chapter three. So mm -hmm. in that sense, I would say it is erotic because it is a description of sex within their marriage. Now, where I think we have to draw the line is it's not pornographic. And this is where maybe we all we all need to check our spirit a little bit and say, do we have an implicit 
uh, vision of what the Bible can and can't talk about that actually draws the line a little bit too far because the Bible does talk about sex and there are appropriate contexts for us to talk about it in the church, but the Bible surely talks about it. And, and we need to remember that not all talk of sex is pornographic and right. not even all instruction on sex and sexuality is pornographic. The, the line there is kind of hard to define, but I would say where somebody like Driscoll's series goes into the pornographic category and, and goes beyond this text is there's not voyeurism in this text. This, the, it's not a matter of we are getting pleasure from watching them consummate their marriage. That's really not the intention of this book at all. That that would be pornography or stripping everything away but the physical act of sex and the physical pleasures that that are in there. The book of Song of Songs is much more about what happens emotionally when you're intimate with somebody in marriage. And so right. that context is the context that can hold a sexual relationship. And that's actually the very thing that pornography destroys is the ability to have the kind of emotional and covenantal boundary that sex is supposed to be contained in. And so I would draw the line and say it is romantic, it is erotic, but it is not pornographic. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think your categories are right on pornography. I, I would add one thing, and that is, to me, pornography is insidious because it strips away the relational aspect of sex. It is my personal expression for my personal satisfaction. I would even include casual sex amongst people in this same category. This is not about casual sex between uh, you know, a one night stand type of a thing. Those kinds of things depersonalize sex and they take sex outside the category of love, outside of a category of relationships. And consequently, I think that pornography is dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. The people no longer matter. You read the Song of Songs, it's what you said. You really see a romantic love story. It's erotic, but it's set in the context of these people. This isn't a chance meeting. And so I do think that it's completely antithetical. And I think God's teaching about sex is it's a good thing. And it is not dehumanizing. It's humanizing when it's used in the context the way it's supposed to be used. Right. That's a that's a great addition, because I think that is if you just sat down and read this book from start to finish, you would certainly get that out of it. That these. Right. People have have come together in an intimacy that is not less than sexual, but more than sexual. Right. And in fact, that's actually God's design for sex. So it, this book can be a little bit hard to define. And uh, I want to try and outline it a little bit because I think there is mm -hmm. a flow here. But there are certainly people who believe that like Proverbs, there are self-contained units, little scenes that are meaningful, but they're not in any particular order or plot. I see a little bit of a plot here. If you start in chapter one and go through two, seven, you have the longings of the man and the woman for each other. Starting in chapter two, verse eight, going through the first half of chapter three, you get the pursuit of each other and the seasons of love and their betrothal. In chapter 3, 6 through 5, 1, you get a wedding and a consummation. In mm -hmm. uh, chapter 5 through chapter 5, verse 2 through 6, 3, again, the chapter divisions are not doing us any 
favors here. Right. You get the pursuit of love. The lost and found kind of scenes in this book are all about growing in their love for one another, learning to live together and without each other. Um, and that growth continues into a maturing love through chapter eight. And then the final part of the book, chapter eight, verses five through 14, is almost like a little hymn of its own to an ideal form of mature love for someone else. And the dialogue that they have back and forth with each other shows that they've grown in the depth of their love for each other at the end of this book. Um, But with that said, I think there are some interesting little choruses and refrains that run through this book. And there's some passages that maybe we can point out that uh, make a little bit more sense of what's going on. I think the main refrain here is do not awaken love before it's time. You Mm -hmm. see that in chapter two, verse seven, you see that in chapter three, verse five and chapter eight, verse four. So it's really close to the beginning in the middle and at the end. Uh, Mm -hmm. Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Or in chapter three, verse five, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases again. And then in chapter eight, verse four, you have the final statement of this, which is, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Why do you think that's a refrain in this book? Yeah, I do think it, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that this is right, but I'll tell you how it strikes me is in the realm of wisdom literature, you get the proper use of things, you get the proper uh, context of things. I read it as contextual. And that is the idea of let things develop. There's a time and a season for everything. And the erotic part of love is not supposed to be at the beginning of the season. Uh, Now, there may be more to this, but it seems at least on the surface, the idea of let this develop. That's what makes it romantic is the idea is that the relationships develops and naturally blossoms into marriage and sex. So I I probably read it that way, but I admit that's not a deep reading of that that course. I I think that's right on because what we have a real problem with culturally is any kind of limit. We don't like limits. We don't like... Um, we don't like the fact that God has established certain grains in the universe that it's better to go with than to go against. I think what this is doing is describing the grain of the universe when it comes to love and Mm. romantic love, especially do not awaken love before it's time. Doesn't mean don't date in junior high. It means (laughs) don't, get things out of order with how God has designed them. So Ian Duguid has a great commentary in the Tyndall series on Song of Solomon. And he says, a Christian view of sex, as depicted in the song's counsel to the young women of Jerusalem, is not about abstaining. It is about waiting for the right time and context for an experience that is so overwhelmingly powerful that only marriage can properly contain it. I think that's a pretty good explanation of what this is saying. It's it's not it's not saying that people can't go against the grain. Clearly, people can. And if you've looked at any kind of statistics, uh, it's it's kind of amazing among Christians how many people, whether it's premarital sex or living together. It has become the norm, like 80% even of Christians, which is just slightly lower than the culture, uh, are doing things out of order from what the Bible says. So it's not that you can't 
do that. You physically can do that. And right. a lot of people can do that and get married and have a successful marriage from, you know, the standpoint of staying together and having kids and having a good family. But what Duguid is getting at, which I think is the biblical picture here, God designs you to do things in such a way. What he's saying is the experience is overwhelmingly beautiful and powerful in the context that God designed. So actually to do it a different way is to settle for something less than what God has. When it seems like what you're doing is going straight to the end and getting what you know right. God really has for you, right. but uh, doing it his way is always the way of getting God's best for you. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Uh, so by doing it that way, you have a positive vision as opposed to just a string of negatives. I think that's one of the right. things that this chorus right. is saying is not, hey, stay away from this. It's bad. In due time. In right. due time. And you will see this is what God has really designed you for. That's a positive vision that can be recaptured. I mean, there's a lot of shame around sexual sin in the church of all kinds. And one of the things we've got to remember is we don't just isolate an issue and forget all about the gospel. Of course, there's forgiveness and grace, and there is cleansing and purity that come from repenting of sin of every kind. And so you can start at any point in your life and begin to follow God's design in love and intimacy. But let's not say, hey, because we want to be full of grace, we're just going to never mention that God designed us to do marriage and sex a certain way. We always have to mention those things together. God designed you to do it this way. And if you haven't, you can start doing it today. And God can cleanse you. He can purify you. He right. can show you his good design for sex and intimacy in your life. Uh, so we don't we don't want to go, hey, we're shaming everybody. If you missed the train, sorry, right. there was one time. Right. But at the same time, we don't want to say, hey, because people may have sinned in this area, we don't want to tell them that actually God has spoken on this. And there is a better way to do it. You have to say both. Right. Oh, I completely agree. Hey, you know, uh, we don't usually do a, a practical life application out of most of these books, but Cole, I, I feel like it's incumbent upon me to advise all the men listening to us. There's a killer life application in this book. And here it is. You know, when you're looking for a romantic card, maybe it's your anniversary, or maybe it's the anniversary of your first dates or whatever it may be, and you need something and you need it to be romantic. But 97.8% of men in the world don't have any idea how to actually be romantic. So I'm going to give you a prescription. What you do is you buy one of those blank inside cards. Don't give her somebody else's romantic words. Buy a blank inside card. Go to the Song of Songs. And let me give you an example. In chapter 6, verse 10, the beautiful, beautiful phrases, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. So you change that up and you write in there, you are my beloved and my desire is for you. Or chapter eight, verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart. You write in there, I have set you as a seal upon my heart. Trust me, guys, you can't do better than the Bible for romantic uh, cards. And I I do think Song of Songs can really be uh, help you in a practical way there. So, Cole, that's free advice practical life application. Well, that if you pick those, that would go really well. But you have to be very selective in the Song of Solomon because <laughs> chances are she's not going to like your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead or your teeth are, teeth are like a flock of ewes which have come up from the washing. I mean, there's a little cultural you, difference in some of these. You do have to exercise a little discernment. I would have to agree with that. 
I think to your point, there are some really powerful descriptions of love in this book. And there's some things that get down to the very core emotions. And I think that's no better seen in the book than in chapter eight, starting in verse six, as you read. The Probably the most famous passage in this book is eight, verse seven. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Or in verse six, love is as strong as death. You sometimes hear this read at, at weddings yeah. because it is so powerful and so descriptive of the ideal version of love. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. I mean, the when I've read through this, I've highlighted it. Some books I highlight things because they're just profound theological truths or they spoke to me in a very practical way. This book I've just read and highlighted the most beautiful passages, things that your heart would like to say, but you don't have the words to say. And I appreciate Solomon for saying it for me. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.